You ready for Basecamp Fitness's best deal yet? Seven days for $7. That's right, seven days for $7. It's time to double down on your fitness goals and snag this offer before it's gone. Call or text Basecamp Fitness at 913-232-9770 or go to BasecampFitness.com to learn more. Garrettson and Toth presents The Shift with Jack Johnson on ESPN Kansas City, 1510 AM and 94.5 FM. Another day, another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I am your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Let's kick off the show this morning talking some college hoops. KU and K-State both winners over the weekend and in dramatic fashion. I would say more so on Kansas State side than Kansas side, but there were certainly some drama in the college game day affair between the Bears and the Jayhawks. Let's start it off. With the first game that tipped off on Saturday being Kansas State and Iowa State. We had talked a little bit on the show last week during the two-game skid of the Kansas State Wildcats that it appeared they were looking a little bit more fatigued. It felt like a large part of the season there wasn't much adversity for this Kansas State team. They were for the most part pretty healthy with the exception of David Gasson. But they were scoring at a high rate. They were playing fantastically at home. They had gotten their tougher road games out of the way early on in Texas and Baylor. But we started to see a slump come into play for this Kansas State team. And on Saturday, in the first half, at least in the first 15 minutes, it looked like the same old, tired Kansas State team. Marquise Noel wasn't shooting the ball well. Keontae Johnson was struggling. And at one point... Iowa State hit a three-pointer to put them up 29-19. to Jerome Tang called a timeout. In that moment, it really felt like a make-it-or-break-it type of pivotal scene for this Kansas State team. It was only a 30-second timeout, but sometimes those timeouts can mean the world. It can completely change your team around, whether it be a play, or it be a motivational speech, something to get the players fired up. Because in that timeout, it felt like there is no more, there is no worse you could play. Kansas State had played very poorly through the first 15 minutes of the game. They were down by 10, had less than 20 points. Jerome Tang calls the timeout, and they at least keep it respectable going into halftime. But that felt like a moment in the game where it could have gotten out of hand. They're not shooting the ball well offensively. Neither was Iowa State. But Iowa State was still up 10. And you wanted to keep that game under 10 going into halftime. You're trailing by 15 or 16 with the way you had played the last couple of games. You weren't going to be able to overcome that. And a loss to Iowa State at home would have almost guaranteed a free fall. Now, Kansas State was still going to make the tournament. But three consecutive losses against Texas Tech, Oklahoma, and an Iowa State team at home You're starting to wonder, is this team bottoming out at the wrong time? I mean, slumping worse than anybody else in the conference. But what Kansas State did fantastically is they hit a little bit of a hot stretch going into the break. Offense was turned up. Defense wasn't great, but kept it under 10. And that was important because in the second half in the opening minutes, Kansas State came roaring back. And once Iowa State started forcing it, you knew in that moment that 
the Wildcats are going to be on the winning side of this game. The pendulum will have swung completely in Kansas State's favor. And Iowa State, I think their biggest flaw, one of their biggest failures as a team, is that when they are struggling, they don't have any semblance of an offense. It's just firing it from deep, whether it's contested or not. And I think once Kansas State was getting the looks that they wanted, you know, going inside with Keontae Johnson, going inside with Naquan Tomlin, you started to see the tides shift a little bit because Iowa State would eat 10, 12 seconds off the play clock, off the shot clock, and then fire up some prayer. And it lead to a long rebound and transition for Kansas State. And they took advantage of that in the second half. They outscore the Cyclones by 14 after trailing by 8 at the break. Marquise Noel led them in scoring with 20. Keontae Johnson had 15. But no other Wildcats scored in double, double figures. And that's important here, too. Because we have harped on time and time and again this season that Kansas State doesn't really have that third scoring option. They can have it from time to time. You know, some guy can step up in a big game. Desi Sills did that against Kansas. We've seen Tyke Green step up. We saw Bebe Ijiola step up. Ish Masood. You know, guys have stepped up before, but for the most part, it is Marquise Noel and Keontae Johnson running things for this Kansas State offense. But it was important to note that this Kansas State team did what we had harped on too on Thursday. You got to be able to take care of the basketball. They only turned it over 11 times to Iowa State's 15. In their losses this year, Kansas State is coughing up the ball left and right. And that will be their downfall if they are an early exit in the tournament, if they are an early exit in the Big 12 tournament. It's going to be turnovers. They can score with just about anybody in the conference, and they can defend just about as good as anybody in the conference. But what separates them from the rest of the top teams in the conference, they just don't take care of the ball. Now, Marquise Noel still had four turnovers. That may be his biggest knock as a player. He's an excellent scorer. He's quick. He's a fantastic defender. Good hands. He turns the ball over a lot for a true point guard. But he did lead the Cats in scoring with 20 in this game. And now you look at Iowa State, and they are the team that's really starting to struggle. Dating back to their win against against Texas at Allen, or excuse me, at Allenville, in Austin. They lost to Kansas and Allen Fieldhouse the week before. So they beat Texas at home by 11, January 17th. From that game, over a month ago, they have won three times. Now, they've beaten some really good teams. They beat Kansas State, they beat Kansas, and they beat TCU. They also have losses to Oklahoma State and Stillwater, Missouri and Columbia, Texas Tech and Lubbock when they led by 23. They lost to West Virginia and Morgantown. They lost to Oklahoma State by 8 at home and then recently lost to Kansas State. So Iowa State now is, I think, in a position where they have to fight for a tournament spot. I still think they get there. They get Oklahoma and West Virginia at home, but I don't think they beat Texas and I don't think they beat Baylor, which would put them at 11 losses going into conference play or the conference tournament. So you can't afford another slip-up at home. Because if you do, I'm not sure 12 or 13 or 14 losses get you into the tournament. At one point, we thought Iowa State was going to be competing for the top two spot in the Big 12. Now they're free-falling. Kansas State needed that one badly. Now 20-7 and on the year, all but solidifying the spot for them in the NCAA tournament. That wasn't really a doubt. Joe Leonardi's bracket projection had them as a three-seed. But now you got Baylor, Oklahoma State, and Stillwater still have to go to West Virginia and Morgantown. 
and then you host Oklahoma at home, who beat you by double digits uh, last week. So Kansas State needed that one desperately because now you're going to have a dogfight against a Baylor team that blew a 17-point lead to Kansas in Allen Fieldhouse, which we'll get into next. Then you play an Oklahoma State team. That's always a tough out in Stillwater. And, of course, we know how difficult it is to win in Morgantown. But Cats get the win 61-55 over the Cyclones. They snap a two-game skid and grab their second win in their last six games. As for the Kansas Jayhawks, what a wild one it was in Lawrence on Saturday, college game day. And we knew what happened last year when Kansas hosted college game day against Kentucky, and the Wildcats just thumped them. It was never close in that game, and it really was a turning point for Kansas in the season because after that loss, they took off. It was the punch in the jaw they really needed if you want to turn something negative into a positive. But the game on Saturday felt a lot like that game against Kentucky, in the first half at least. I mean, Keontae George is hitting 26-foot contested three-pointers. Kansas wasn't getting anything to fall on their end of the floor. Jalen Wilson started 0 of 6. He's missing wide-open layups. You know, Dewan Harris isn't really taking too many shots. Grady Dick only had one three-pointer to fall from deep in the first half, and you're going, man, not only is Baylor demolishing us in every facet of the game, they could be just the third team, I believe, since Bill Self took over at Kansas to sweep them in the regular season. And Baylor only won by six in Waco, but that game didn't really feel that close. I mean, Kansas got close in the second half, but when Baylor pulled away, it was just the Jayhawks trying to scramble to keep that thing under eight points. In this game, much different story. Baylor couldn't miss, and Keontae George couldn't miss. And Kansas wasn't getting the bench play they had gotten in the previous three games. The starting five, they were okay. They just weren't hitting many open shots. Baylor was hitting every shot they put up. But man, oh man, I've never seen a second half like that from Kansas in a long time. A complete 180. Baylor couldn't get anything to fall in the second half. Kansas hit everything. After trailing 45-32 to at halftime, the Jayhawks go on to outscore Baylor 55-26. to They outscore them by 29 points, nearly 30. I mean, at one point they were on a 35-9 to run against a damn good Baylor team. And Baylor in the first half, after a four-point play from Keontae George, led 40-23. to Kansas wins that game by 17. Trail by 17, needed one half to erase a 17-point deficit and not come away with a one- or two-point win that comes down to the final seconds. They blow Baylor out. That, to me, was the most impressive stretch of basketball Kansas has had in two years. I would put that above the 15-point comeback in the national championship against North Carolina. Different stakes. Of course, I think it's more impressive of what Kansas did on the national stage as opposed to a regular season game against Baylor. But I think of the pure dominance, how they dominated Baylor in the second half, it was incredible. I mean, Baylor went from having the confidence of pulling up from damn near half court and hitting everything, getting everything to go, getting every loose ball, to not even being able to dribble in the second half turning the ball over left and right, 
taking bad shots, missing wide-open layups. And on the other end, you have Dewan Harris hitting three-pointers, Bobby Pettiford, Ernest Uday catching lobs, Kevin McCuller and Jalen Wilson attacking the goal, then Grady Dix hitting from deep. I mean, across the board, I don't remember a more dominant stretch of basketball for this Kansas team in two or three years. You may have been the fan that says, remember that game against Miami in the Elite Eight. That was very impressive. But I think Miami was a far worse basketball team than this Baylor one. Baylor, after starting 0-3, has pretty much been the best team in the conference. They had lost one other time since starting 0-3, and that was to Texas and Austin, the other team who was tied for first place in the Big 12. And they had dominated teams like Texas Tech. They had beaten TCU on the road. They'd beaten Arkansas at home. They'd beaten Texas Tech and Lubbock. I mean, they really hadn't had a bad stretch of play since starting 0-3. And I think when you look at that Miami team in the Elite Eight, they were a team that was playing with house money. We like to use that term a lot. They were a 10 seed in the Elite Eight, and Kansas trailed by six at halftime. Baylor led by 17 in the first half, and the Jayhawks win by 17. If you were not as confident on this Kansas team and maybe running it back, and I still think, I will say this until the tournament, it's unlikely they do. The odds of you winning back-to-back national titles is nearly impossible. But Saturday's game gave me an idea of where this Kansas team can go. Because just like last year's team, they're really tough to keep down. I mean, Baylor played a perfect first half. They really did. They could have been a little bit better defensively down the stretch the final three minutes. But overall, you can't play much better than that on the road in Allen Fieldhouse offensively. And the fact you can play that perfectly for one half a play and then still have a chance of playing that badly in the second half, it shows you that Kansas is going to be a team in March that's never down and out. You can lead by 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. You're going to have to be full throttle for the entire game. You can't get conservative, you can't get too weak, and you know that if you have five or six possessions in a row that don't result in points, Kansas on their runs are going to score in all five or six of those possessions. It's what happened on Saturday. And it's a part of being well-coached. They've got the talent. They've got five stars coming off the bench. We sat here a few weeks back when Kansas had lost three in a row. They just lost to Baylor on the road, and and didn't really have a bad loss in those three games. You lose to Kansas State and Manhattan. You lose to TCU at home, a very healthy TCU team at the time, and Baylor on the road. They weren't bad losses, but I think we all thought, all right, with the way that Texas is playing, the way Baylor is surging a little bit, Iowa State surging, this is just not going to be a year where Kansas is going to win the Big 12. Now we sit a month later, and Kansas has lost one game from that point, and it was to Iowa State, similar to Baylor and the way they dominated it after starting 0-3. Following Kansas's three-game losing streak from January 17th to January 23rd, they have lost only one time. And in that stretch, they beat Kentucky in Rupp Arena, they beat Kansas State at home, they won in Norman, won in Stillwater, and beat Baylor. And now you have a colossal showdown tonight against TCU, which, if I'm being quite honest, if Kansas wins this game tonight, it almost clinches a share of the Big 12 title automatically. Then you come back home for West Virginia and Texas Tech at home. I don't see Kansas losing either of those games. 
and Texas Tech on the other or Texas on the other hand, they still have to go play Iowa State at home and go on the road to play Baylor and TCU and then host Kansas. Texas has the much tougher schedule to finish out the season. So you beat TCU tonight. Actually, I'll go one step further. You beat TCU tonight, I think you win the Big 12 outright. That's what's on the line for this Kansas team. And once again, it's another team that has a chance to sweep Kansas for only the third time in the Bill Self era, I believe. Maybe it's only the second. Because I remember Oklahoma State did. I think I'm going to take it back. I think Oklahoma State, Mike Boyden, is the only coach to sweep Bill Self in the regular season. Jamie Dixon and the TCU Horned Frogs won by 23, I believe it was, in Allen Fieldhouse earlier in the year. Yep, 83-60. to 60. Yeah, can confirm Oklahoma State in 2018 was the first Big 12 First team, team to do it. And I want to say that the Allen Fieldhouse game came first. I, I think it was because there was a stat when they were playing Baylor that if the Bears would have won on Saturday, they would have been the first team to sweep Kansas with the second game of the season matchup coming in Lawrence. So first game was the Lawrence matchup between yeah. the Cowboys and Hawks. Yep, so. Yeah, so when they then played in Stillwater, it was almost, okay, they're not going to win Stillwater either. Mm-hmm. But Baylor would have been the first team to beat them on the road first and then come into Allen Fieldhouse and win again. No team wow. had swept Kansas and had the second game. It's sort of an obscure stat, but it basically is going to say if you beat Kansas for the first time around, you're not winning in Lawrence the second time around. See, and it's nuggets like those when you're listening to the broad, the local broadcast yeah. um, on 810, um, that and then Bill Self's home record in Allen Fieldhouse to just make you go look at those live lines mm-hmm. when they're down by 10 or more. I, I saw somebody put a bet down at halftime for Kansas money line. Yeah, plus 400. Yep, put 25 down, 195. So you just feel like when Kansas is playing at home for the most part, no lead is ever safe. They have overcome some large deficits this season at halftime, second half. First Big 12 game of the season. They played Oklahoma State, trailed by 15 and a half. One in the final seconds. Oklahoma, they trailed by 10 with four minutes to go. Overcame that deficit. And against Baylor, they trailed by 17 in the first half and win by 17. But this game against TCU, Kansas may be the only team that'll play TCU at full strength twice this season. Mike Miles returned to TCU's lineup on Saturday, and the Horn Frogs won 100 to 75 over Oklahoma State. TCU may be a top two team in the Big 12 when Mike Miles and Eddie Lampkin are healthy. They are going to be tonight. So Kansas, it's not a do or die type of game. Even if they lose, I think they can grab a share of the Big 12 title. But if you win tonight, I think it all but wraps up that you get the Big 12 title outright, which would be a remarkable feat with how damn good the Big 12 has been this year. Tip-off tonight in Fort Worth will be at 8 p.m. on ESPN. The Horn Frogs are a one-and-a-half-point favorite over the, I'm assuming to be, the third or fourth-ranked Jayhawks. Right now they're fifth, but the AP Top 25 has not been released of yet. TCU was ranked 22nd before their game on Saturday against Oklahoma State. I'd imagine they're going to crack the top 20. So hostile environment once again for Kansas tonight. Big 12 title hopes are on the line, at least clinching it outright. We'll see if the Jayhawks can do that once again. And I would say maybe their toughest game of the season. I throw that I threw that term around a lot. I said Oklahoma State would be their toughest game of the season. Texas would be. Baylor would be. I think it's kind of fair at this point 
that every single game that Kansas plays in, it could be their toughest of the season. But TCU, like we just said, or at least I believe, they're a top three team in the Big 12 when they're healthy. They'll be healthy tonight, and it would be a very impressive W for Kansas if they get out with a win in Fort Worth. Let's take our first break of the show. When we come back, let's catch up with some headlines from Surprise Arizona as the Royals have had their pitchers and catchers report. But I've seen some interesting articles come out about this coaching staff and how they are working with the catchers, how they are working with the pitchers. Can we really believe that a complete 180 is going to happen with this Royals pitching staff, or is it all word fodder at this point? We'll get into that next on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN, Kansas City. We are back here on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I'm your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Now that the football season has sort of cooled off, of course, with the Chiefs being the 2023 world champions of football, and and we're still, from time to time, going to be able to dive into some Chiefs news. Hell, the draft is coming up in April here in Kansas City. We'll have plenty of football talk. Uh, going into the offseason. So don't worry about that. This isn't the final time we're talking football in Kansas City. But what is next professionally here in Kansas City will be Royals baseball. Has pitchers and catchers have already reported the surprise Arizona. A large part of the roster has actually already showed up in surprise as we're just, you know, a couple of weeks away. If not, I think it is at the end of this month the Royals will have their first spring training game. They'll likely be having some inter squad matchups here. My guess is this week. But we've already gotten some news out of camp. We've heard how some players are doing. But I think what's really stuck with me when looking at this Royals team is the praise this coaching staff is getting. And I understand that when you have a new coaching staff, the easy thing to do is always report on the positives. Say, oh, it's different in camp. You'll always hear pitchers or infielders, outfielders, maybe other coaches, assistant coaches, minor leaguers, rookies, veterans, they'll say, oh, things are different. It feels a lot different here. We're a very cohesive union. We're all pretty close here. We're tight here. and We we love playing for this guy or this guy. And I would be naive in not mentioning that when Mike Matheny was hired in Kansas City, there were players that said they liked the intensity of how things were run. It was win every single game. But I think it's a little bit different than what I'm seeing out of surprise this time around. Most importantly, with the assistant coaches on the staff. There have been a number of stories done by Annie Rogers of MLB.com. One of them on Paul Hoover, the new Royals bench coach. And one of them this morning that came out on Zach Bove, assistant pitching coach alongside Brian Sweeney. Now, I'll start it off with the Paul Hoover story. And I think it's very important because it's a minor detail that's not always caught by the average baseball fan's eye. Sometimes analytics can be very confusing. You don't want to really pay attention to them. You don't know defensively what UZR is. Expected batting average, batting average balls in play, WRC+. Some of that stuff can seem foreign to you. And I don't blame you. I mean, when those data numbers were first brought up, when you were first trying to study it, 
I didn't know what 50, 60, 70% of those stats meant or how you measure any of those stats. But what we've seen with this Royals coaching staff is that they really are trying to hammer in a lot of those points, but not so much offensively. The little things on the defensive side, because where the Royals really struggled last year, and I don't think it was always caught by the eye of everybody. If you showed up at the game, you can't see it. If you go to Kauffman Stadium, you can't really see it. It's not glaring. You know, you go out to Kauffman Stadium and you see, you know, a guy like Bobby Witt Jr. commit two or three errors in a game. Probably not three. Let's go two errors in a game. It doesn't look great, but sometimes the ball's hit hard or he's trying to make an extra effort play. But what you don't see is maybe the lateral movement. You know, how much ground does he cover? Some guys do not look great defensively, but they can get to more balls than the average shortstop can. Now, Bobby Wood Jr. was not great defensively last year. I think he still projects to be a very good defensive shortstop. You know, and I think there's been few times in Royals history that a guy has looked really good in the outfield or the infield or behind the plate, and the data proves that that player is really good. For example, Lorenzo Cain's kind of the unicorn. I test passed it. Analytics-wise, passed it. You go to a guy like Eric Hosmer or Mike Moustakis. Those were guys that I test when you're watching the games at 13, 14, and 15. You go, damn, they're really good. They won a gold glove. Even Alcides Escobar, El Mago. Those were guys that were not loved by the analytics crowd. They did not think they were very good defensively. So sometimes when you're trying to reconstruct a roster, you can work with guys that maybe the data doesn't love or analytics doesn't love and turn them into a much better player. We've seen it across baseball, but we've only seen it with organizations that thrive on data. Cleveland, Tampa, the Dodgers, the Astros, just to name a few. The Yankees are another team as well. The Royals have always been resistant to analytics, going back to the Ned Yost years. Now, it worked for Ned Yost, and I would say Mike Matheny tried to be analytically inclined. He didn't have a very good roster, and I don't think he was using that data correctly. But the Paul Hoover story is very intriguing to me because he was a catching coach, too, for Tampa. He worked with the catchers. And if you look at the numbers for that race pitching staff, a large portion of that can be attributed to how the Rays called games and how their catchers got their pitchers extra strikes. The Royals were dead last in baseball last year in getting those extra strikes, in pitch framing. Salvador Perez and MJ Melendez were the worst in baseball. Cam Gallagher, in terms of getting extra strikes, was the best catcher defensively for the Royals. And you can't play Cam Gallagher every single day. You need to play Salvi or MJ every single day. So Paul Hoover, in spring training so far, has made an emphasis with Salvador Perez and MJ Melendez to set up differently behind the plate. Trying to have those frames that don't look as obvious to the umpire. You know, Salvador Perez, he has won gold gloves before. I think it was more so in the era before fan graphs and all that analytical data came about. It was more so eye test, and he threw out a lot of guys. And when he'd set up and his pitchers hit the spot, it looked nice. But now we can see with Salvador Perez and more of the analytical world that when he's trying to frame pitches, it looks a little bit much. It's a little bit dramatic. You know, a a curveball that's missing an inch or two off the plate, his glove moves a lot. You know, with some guys and the way they receive the ball, 
I know you can't see the way I'm moving my hand right now, but when they receive the ball, it doesn't look like it changes that much. And you can complain about an umpire missing a call. You know, that play, that ball was an inch or two off the plate. It was too low. It was too inside. It was too high. Well, if you have a catcher that sets up there and makes it look like he hit the spot, that's going to get your Daniel Lynch's of the world, your Chris Bubich's of the world, your Brady Singer's, your Jordan Lau's, your Ryan Yarbrough's, your Zach Greinke's. The better pitch count in a game and getting ahead of hitters. What's one thing the Royals could not do well at all last year? Hell, that's just one. They didn't do a lot of things well last year on the pitching side. They couldn't get ahead of guys. They walked a lot of guys. But it's not always on the pitching staff. It's on the catchers as well. And it did not help that the Royals had a combination of Cal Eldred, bad catchers defensively, and not very great pitchers. And that all piled together to assemble one of the worst pitching staffs in the American League last year. Paul Hoover is trying to change that, but by doing so, working with these catchers. Zach Bove and Brian Sweeney can work on the pitchers, making sure they've got the right arsenal, making sure they're attacking hitters at the right time, not leaving their fastball over the plate, making sure their slider has a good bite to it, but locating it well. But locating it well also has to work hand-in-hand with catchers setting up in the right position. Now, I think MJ Melendez is going to be an outfielder for this team. Salvador Perez is going to be the primary catcher for this team, and I still think they'll probably add somebody through spring training that can be the backup catcher. I don't think they're going to want MJ Melendez playing left field, and on his off days from the outfield, he's behind the plate. But Salvador Perez, this late in his career, and you could see in the story, it was written by Annie Rogers of MLB.com, he's already talked about how he's loved working with Paul Hoover, how he's already learned a lot from Paul Hoover. And this could all be. You know, wishful thinking that Salvi's going to change his ways. I think Salvador Perez is very coachable. He just hasn't had the guy that's come from an organization that values pitch framing. The other thing to factor in, though, how much longer are human umpires going to be around? If it's robot umpires and you hit the zone, well, it doesn't matter if you get those extra strikes. The only way this is beneficial is if you can fool an umpire into thinking it's a strike. The Royals couldn't fool anybody into thinking their pitchers were throwing strikes. Yes, it also hurts when you have guys walking five or six guys per nine, and when you're missing the zone by two to three feet, no, you're not going to get those extra strikes, even if you have a good pitch framer. But hoping that guys like Zach Bove and Brian Sweeney can work with this pitching staff, harness their stuff, and still have good stuff, right? I think another part of it relies on this catching staff. You know, with Salvador Perez, MJ Melendez, and maybe whoever they bring in. They could bring in Freddie Fermin up to the big league level. You know, they did let Sebastian Rivero go. They let Cam Gallagher go. But there's still guys that will not make it with teams in spring training. And you want to go out and get a guy that every week, once a week, he can catch your pitching staff. Or you can pair one pitcher in your rotation with that catcher that has a good pitch frame. But Paul Hoover, coming over from Tampa... That may have been one of the more underrated underrated hires of the offseason for the Kansas City Royals. I think Brian Sweeney and Zach Bove were no-brainers. That was great for the pitching staff. You get somebody from Cleveland and you get somebody from Minnesota in their minor league development, you were going in the right direction. But it was interesting to me, and this article about Paul Hoover by Andy Rogers, Kevin Cash and Eric Neander of Tampa Bay, on the coaching staff of Tampa Bay, they told Matt Quattraro when he left, We'll let you bring somebody if you're interested. And it was a no-brainer for him that he wanted to bring Paul Hoover in. Because Paul Hoover could work with this pitching staff and work with these catchers. 
and he got along really well with Paul Hoover. But this is where the Royals can start to change their identity. And they don't need to be this data guru team. It's also about having a good lineup. That helps a lot. You have to have good talent on this team. And I don't think anybody's expecting the Royals to go out there and win 85 to 90 games. But I think when you can be proud of the Royals or you can be entertained by the Royals, you can understand that they are working with some of these young guys where of their first two years at the big league level, or hell, even some veterans, if they've been in Kansas City for a long time, they haven't always had the best coaching. And the last three years, there's been some pretty damn bad coaching in Kansas City. None of those guys got better. They all regressed. You could say Brady Singer got better last year. I think that was on talent alone. They could do with good coaching. Now, I don't want to be this guy that comes in and says, oh, this pitching staff's going to be phenomenal, right? Everything they do is going to be fantastic. This is not the case. There's going to be times that we have a show in the morning here and we're criticizing something they're doing. Of the offense is in a lull early on in April and May. You can go out there and criticize guys like Alex Zumwalt, guys like Keone Duren. You know, Drew Saylor's working with these minor league hitters. If they come up to the big league level and they're still struggling, we got to see where the disconnect is. There will be times the pitching staff really struggles. And you got to see where they're making adjustments. I think last year, the year before that, and the year before that, there weren't many adjustments made. It was stick with them. They'll eventually teach their way through it. And you're hoping this time around, the Royals with a better approach, with guys coming from more successful organizations, they'll be able to have immediate success. You can see this pitching staff go from worst in baseball to maybe 20th. The next year, 15th or 14th. After that, top 10. You don't want it to take maybe that long, but if you're seeing strides every single month, that's when you can get behind this Royals organization. When you're seeing the inconsistency and the struggles that happened in April happen again in August, then you're not going to be supportive of this franchise. But I think what they're doing right now in spring training, man, they're saying all the right things. What we've heard about Daniel Lynch, how he's improving his curveball. They're using the video. They're using the data there. They're trying different grips. They want to get the spin rate up. The way we're seeing this team be assembled isn't a world-beating team. But I think with the right coaching, with some of these guys reaching the ceiling, getting better or diving more into their potential, then we'll see a team be a cakewalk every single weekend or go from a cakewalk to a team that's going to be a tough out. It's going to be tough to take two of three from them. Four-game series, you'll be fortunate to get a split with them. No, but they're always going to be tough in those three- or four-game series. They're going to have clunkers. Every team does. But I think in a year where you're not really expecting the postseason, you want them to be entertaining by being very competitive. It's got to start there. And if you have a coaching staff that is intelligent enough that you can get behind, it makes things that much more different. So it's early on in spring training, but from what I've heard, what I've seen, it appears they are moving in a positive direction. But again, it's all about on-field results. Spring training numbers really don't matter. But with the way they're working with some of these guys, the praise the coaching staff is getting, it appears to me right now that J.J. Piccolo made the right hires with nearly everybody on his staff. From Brian Sweeney and Zach Bove to Paul Hoover to Matt Quattraro to keeping Alex Zumwalt on staff, Keone Duran on staff. It's a really good coaching staff in Kansas City. And they're going to try to make up for maybe two or three lost years where none of those guys had much direction.
Marco, I know spring training can be a time that you can either be too optimistic or too negative, but I think that with Paul Hoover specifically, I want to go back to the catching aspect here. When you look at Salvador Perez and you look at MJ Melendez, I mean, how much do you think pitch framing matters? How much do you think grabbing those extra strikes matters for a team? Is it more so when you look at the Royals pitching staff, when they are struggling? Is it more so on their inability to throw strikes, or can it be more so in the catching at times where they're providing no help back there? They are providing negative defensive value behind the plate and not helping average pitchers get any extra strikes. I think it could be um, a little bit of both. It's the fact that it's the fact that the Royals are brought in. The staff that they did showed that they could do. That showed that they know or believe that they could do better on each side. It's as far. It's 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 a part of fixing the pitching and the catching that goes along with it. Um, and one interesting note: um, Andy Rogers doing a great job covering down there in Surprise, Arizona. The two stories that we've gotten so far, the bigger ones that you've touched on, have been around the pitching and catching. So I think there, it's the Royal Sea, a little bit of both sides that can uh, be could be teeter with and fixed. Um, and so. As far as if you want an example of what Paul Hoover can do as a catcher, as a as a as a bench coach, but with an emphasis on catching specifically, how we can better them, you go back to Tampa Bay, and I'm reading up about what he's done with what's projected to be the race, who's projected to be the race starting catcher this year, and uh, for the first time in his. Uh, career that's 31 year old Christian Betancourt um, I guess has been a journeyman was a yeah, top prospect he was a pitcher at one point a pitcher he's been moved around as a pitcher catcher and outfielder but he really has it, he's really stuck to catching is what he said and so he said he couldn't find a, find a place in Atlanta where he was uh, at starting his career as a top prospect then he began it, Catch me and stop me if you've heard this phrase about a Royals uh, minor leaguer or prospect, but became a journeyman through the Mm -hmm. farm system and then found his way on a different team, specifically here with Betancourt, found himself in Tampa um, with Paul Hoover as as, as the coach and was working on the framing and the things that we're now talking about with the Royals and not a journeyman, but a proven veteran in Salvador Perez, who spoke already and talked about what he's learning, uh, new things as what he can do as a catcher. Um, so that's so. If you want an example of what Hoover can do um, with just a catcher in general, hell, not even a prove, not even someone that has uh, put up numbers like a Salvador Perez. Um, you just go back and look at and look at what look at uh, the catcher for this year with Tampa Bay Rays. So. Um, so far, it's, it's that's an exciting start um, down there. It's 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 a lot of young talent for the Royals, and we got to see some of it last year. What they can do with, I mean, what what the guys can do with a Mike Matheny and mm-hmm. the, the 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 staff that was around them last year. Imagine what they could do with some teetering and coaching. I mean, it's just. Uh, it's. I, I think that we're going to be. I think that we have. We're going to be surprised at how much better. Maybe we won't see it in the win totals like you see. Like like you mentioned, it's more about getting pe- competitive each game 
over that long 162-game season. So I think we're going to be surprised by how better the Royals are um, defensively and pitching, I think I think we're I think we're in for a surprise with uh, with this team this year. It would be incredible to see that type of jump in just year one with this new coaching staff. But if you want to talk about success, I think it all starts with pitching. Uh, this offense, I think, is going to be fine when it's all said and done. It's the pitching that kind of worries me. But if they've got the right direction, and if it is really true that the data is helping these younger pitchers. We will see that jump in just year one under Matt Quattraro. We'll take our final break of the show. When we come back, we will talk about that play with Jarek McKinnon in the Super Bowl and why he attributes it to coaching and not so much of his personal gain from it. That's next on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN, Kansas City. Back here on The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I am your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. Now, we did promise a little bit more Super Bowl talk this week, and this really the lasting effects of the Super Bowl. But a great story was put out by Steve Gardner of the USA Today on Jarek McKinnon and that late-game slide he had in Super Bowl 57, which all but clinched that victory for the Chiefs. Now... I think we all are aware that Jarek McKinnon was prepared going into that moment, right? I don't think he was ever going to consider strutting into the end zone and thinking that he made the right move. But I think it was how emphatic he was in his answer as to why he slid down at the two-yard line rather than his own personal gain of it, right? Jarek McKinnon, I think, is a very high IQ player. And sometimes players just think in those moments. They know going into the huddle, hey, if I get a breakaway here, I'm going to slide down at the one. But he said, quote, it wasn't even a hesitation in my mind to score once I knew what situation we were in. We practiced that every week. I didn't really think too much of it because that's how we were coached. And that, to me, resonates so much with the structure of the Kansas City Chiefs. Practicing that play every single week. I think there's a lot of coaches in the NFL, college, high school, that'll practice that play, but not every week. Right, You just want to hammer that point in and say, hey, when we get in this spot, you're going to go down. Hell, there may be coaches that don't even practice it. They just bring everybody in the timeout and say, go down the one or the two-yard line if they're not going to tackle you. and Make sure you're not drug into the end zone. The fact that the Chiefs practice that play every single week shows you that in moments like that, they're always going to know what to do. You know, I think if you've played football before, basketball before, baseball before. You go through those those practices where you're practicing the the unlikely moments, the fire drill type of plays. I'll never forget in football, the special teams unit had to practice this fire drill where you didn't have a timeout and you had to rush your, your field goal unit onto the field. And everybody had to be cool, everybody had to be composed, everybody had to be poised. Now the chances of that happening are low. Right, Usually you have one more timeout to burn. You can get your kicker out on the field, set them up for the game-winning kick. But I don't remember ever practicing a play like that, where you go down at the two or the one-yard line, make sure that you don't get the ball back. The other team doesn't get the ball back. And it's important because in the current landscape of the NFL, we have seen even average quarterbacks go the length of the field on teams with a minute, minute 20, minute 30, pretty easily. The NFL is just built for offense. And I think Patrick Mahomes sort of set that precedent that you never want to give a good quarterback time, even if it's 20 seconds, 25, 30 seconds. You don't want even want to have a chance for that quarterback to have a hook and ladder play or a Hail Mary 
some prayer to throw up there as time expires. And the Chiefs could have stumbled into the end zone, gotten a seven-point lead, given the ball back to Jalen Hurts, and still won the game. That was still a possibility. But going down to the two or the one-yard line solidified that Jalen Hurts was never going to have time to go even 20, 30 yards to put them in position to throw a Hail Mary. That's coaching. And the Chiefs had lost a handful of times this year and the year before that and the year before that where teams executed that play to perfection, not wanting to give the ball back to Kansas City, using a flag, using their running game, just kneeling down on the ball because if you give Patrick Mahomes anything more than 10 seconds, he's likely going to give his team a chance to win the game. But the Chiefs value other quarterbacks playing against them now like teams value Patrick Mahomes. You just never want to take that chance. And Jarek McKinnon credits coaching to the heads-up play he had in the Super Bowl. We said this on the show last week, or I believe Marco said this, that he could have told his grandkids 20, 30, 40 years down the line, I scored the go-ahead touchdown in Super Bowl 57. That clinched our team's win. Or he could say he scored and his team went on to lose the game. But what he can say now is he was one of the main contributing parts as to why the Chiefs had a chance to set up that game-winning field goal. Hell, he was the reason the Chiefs were able to burn out the clock and win that game. It's all about coaching. And you could say you just need the franchise quarterback, you need the weapons, you need the defense, you need the supporting members of the coaching staff. But in the end, it's about making sure your players have the highest IQ thought in their head. Never really used that phrase before, but you think about it. They always need to be thinking two or three steps ahead. You can't be caught up in the moment and make the dumb play. And it wouldn't have been a negative play. It would have resulted in points for the Chiefs. But Jarek McKinnon knew in that spot. He's not even saying, hey, don't credit me. We were taught to do that every single time. It was a no-brainer for me. I was never going to score. And to credit the coaching staff, you just know this Chiefs team is always set up to be put in winning plays like that. And that's why the Chiefs win a hell of a lot more than the rest of the NFL. Better structure, better foundation, better coaching. A no-brainer for Jarek McKinnon sliding down at the one or two-yard line that solidified the Chiefs' second Super Bowl victory in the last four years. Let's wrap up the show with some fact or fiction. Five questions, five takes in under five minutes. Marco Fireway. Fact or fiction, Kansas at minimum reaches the Elite Eight this year. I think this is fascinating because right now, at least in Joe Lunardi's recent projection, a, they do not have Kansas as the number one seed in the Midwest region. That is important because if Kansas gets the number one seed in the Midwest, they would get the Sweet 16 in the Elite Eight at the T-Mobile Center in Kansas City. I think the most recent projection had them in as the number one seed in the West, if I'm not mistaken. That is a big reason as to where I would go with my projection here. If Kansas is the number one seed in the Midwest, I would go yes. At minimum, they're getting to the Elite Eight because they'll have a home crowd in the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight. And I feel pretty confidently, assuming they don't get a brutal regional matchup in the first and second rounds, I think they get at least past the first weekend. The Sweet 16 matchup, I think it depends on where it's being played. And right now, the only two teams that should be ahead of them in rankings is Alabama and Houston. Purdue should not be ahead of them. They lost once again this past weekend. So I think Kansas will either be in the West or the Midwest. But I kind of want to wait 
to see if it's at minimum Elite Eight. I'm going to go Fiction for now because still an Elite Eight appearance would be a very impressive end of the season. I know you're always looking at Final Four and championships, but Elite Eight after winning the championship the year before, that's tough to do. I'll go Fiction for not only it's the minimum for this Kansas team. Kansas number one in the East and Joe Lenardi's projections as of today. Factor Fiction, KU holds TCU under 80 points tonight. I think it's going to be a high-scoring game tonight, so I'll go Fiction. I think this game will be decided in the 80s. Factor fiction, Salvador Perez's pitching framing improves significantly in 2023. I think it improves. I don't know about significantly because Salvador Perez has been doing this a very long time. This will be year 12 in Kansas City for him. I don't think you're going to see a massive jump. I just want to see a little bit of improvement to show that, hey, with Paul Hoover, who's ever catching for the Royals, they are going to be working on pitch framing, which it appears right now, as pitchers and catchers have reported, that has been a big emphasis. Factor fiction, Jarek McKinnon is re-signed to the Chiefs before April. I don't think it'll be that early. I think they'll go after the draft because I don't think he'll be one of the highest coveted running backs on the market. There's a lot bigger names out there, and he's over the age of 30 now. I don't think fiction before April, but I do think the Chiefs will re-sign him. UNC misses the tournament this year. They are 16-11, 0-9 against quad one teams this year, and they still have two more tough road matchups to close out the year. I don't think Carolina's making it. How about that? Leading by 15 and the national championship a year ago being preseason number one, you returned four of your five starters from that team, maybe in jeopardy of missing the NCAA tournament. Hubert Davis absolutely should be on the hot seat. There is Ray Charles, so it's time to go. That wraps up another edition of The Shift on 94.5 FM and 1510 AM ESPN Kansas City. I've been your host, Jack Johnson, alongside Marco Marquez. We'll talk to you tomorrow at 10 AM. You take it easy, Kansas City. Don't you come back.